Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Elamans 7 through 12. This particular set of chapters is very, very difficult. There's no, there's no easy way to, to get around this. Um, the Nephite society and the Lamanite society have, have gotten to the point where they are steeped in pride and sin and destruction and sorrow and spending most of their time in this aspect of the pride cycle and spending very little time here in the humility and repentance side. So we pick up our story in the 60th and ninth year of the reign of the judges with Nephi, who's that son of Helaman, coming back down into the land of Zarahemla. He's been up in the land northward trying to teach the people up there, but has been largely rejected. So he comes home, he's on his garden tower, which is near the highway that, that runs by his, uh, his property there, and he is pouring his heart out to God in, in a lament. He's, he's very, very uh, sad about the state of, 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 of affairs among his people. And this large group gathers, and of course in the group you have some Gadianton robbers, some of the judges, and then you have some common people there, and these Gadianton robbers, these people who have some authority, they don't like hearing the truth about how they have changed the laws and uh, corrupted the government and corrupted the laws because you'll notice it's far easier to change a law than it is to change your heart. It's far easier to force conformance of the law to my behavior than it is to repent and be humble and force conformance of my behavior to God's laws. So that's what's happened societally is this group has, has just slowly made it so that the laws match up with their, their desires for iniquity and their desires for evil. Look at what he says in verse uh, – we'll just – skipping over the first 15 verses where he's he's crying his lament to God and having that initial interaction with these people from his tower. Look at verse 16 in chapter 7. Yea, how could you have given way to the enticing of him who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe? It's such a fascinating thing to stop every once in a while, take a time out, and step back from mortality and just look from an eternal perspective and say, you know, I could do whatever it is that, that the natural man, natural woman aspects of, of mortal experience desire. I could, I could enjoy life for the short term, but Nephi here brings us back to the reality of we're just giving way to the enticing of this being, look at those words again, who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe. 
those are powerful words, that they've given their agency over to the, to the desires, appetites, and passions of the, the natural man, natural woman, and it's leading to everlasting misery and endless woe, where they can't keep going through this cycle, but they're just going to end up in eternal sorrow, eternal woe. So what's the solution? He turns to them in 17, he says, Oh, repent ye, repent ye, why will ye die? Turn ye, turn ye unto the Lord your God. And in a Hebrew context, saying repent ye and turn ye is saying the same thing. It's turn the corner, turn towards God, turn away from the mortal and turn towards the eternal. Then go to verse uh, 20. Oh, how, how could you have forgotten your God in the very day he has delivered you? But behold, now he gives the answer, look at verse 21. Behold, it is to get gain, to be praised of men, yea, and that ye might get gold and silver, and ye have set your hearts upon the riches and the vain things of this world, for the which ye do murder and plunder and steal and bear false witness against your neighbor and do all manner of iniquity. You'll notice the, the order of what happened there. He says what you're after is to get gain, to be praised of men, and to get gold and silver. So you're getting gain, you're getting that gain through power, riches, honor, the glories of the world, and what are you willing to do in order to get that gain? Well, murder, plunder, steal, bear false witness against your neighbor, do all manner of iniquity, all for you to get gain. Hmm. There's an interesting scripture in the New Testament where in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 we read, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Just a side note here, the, the King James Version says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's no definite article in the Greek, so uh, most other English translations of the Bible will tell you that the love of money is a root of all evil, which is more accurate to the, to the original. It's not the only root, but it is a strong root of all evil. Why? Think about it. What happens when you start to get more and more and more and more money? What happens to your feelings of power and your ability to, to do things and to buy things and to get what you want? And here's the real question. When you've turned your life over to the devil and you're seeking for more and more money, when is enough enough? When do you arrive? When do you say, hey, I'm good, I don't need any more? Uh, it's fascinating that these people have made money and power and the glory of the world become their god. They're not looking to Heavenly Father, and you're going to see it in this story coming up really quickly um, in, a, in a personal context. In the, in the first year of marriage, my wife and I were pretty poor. I was still working my way through school, had a couple of part-time jobs. Uh, we didn't have a lot of excess money, and we budgeted every dollar 
that came in and we knew where it was all allocated to go out to live within our means. And uh, my dear wife, on multiple occasions, she would, she would write out this two-week menu for our food and then she would go to the local grocery store and she'd have a calculator and she'd be buying things and adding it up and by the time she'd get to the end looking at the menu, she would have added it up and on multiple occasions she would say, oh, we're $3 over and she would have to decide what to put back, what don't we really need. And uh, at first that, that was kind of hard on me, thinking, oh, this is rough, that we have to be so careful with our money. But brothers and sisters, those were, those were sacred uh, days where we didn't have a lot and we had to sacrifice and we had to trust a lot more in God to provide for our needs, and we trusted him, and he, and he did provide for our needs, just not a lot of our wants at that time. The problem with the Nephite civilization here and, and some of the Lamanites mixing in is they have so much of gold and silver and precious things that it's all they think about. It's all they pursue. Everything is bent on getting more, 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 and thus the devil is seeking to hurl away their souls by giving them this fleeting thing that can't save them, it won't, it won't bring them ultimate happiness. One of the beautiful things about the Book of Mormon is we are told consistently that it's written for our day. And as we pointed out, these are actually hard chapters to read because it's hard to watch people that we love suffer. And by this point in the Book of Mormon, we've kind of felt this deep love for the people of the Book of Mormon, the people of God, and we were almost like cheering them on like, you can do this, you can trust God and he can be good to you. And then we see them falling into these, this pattern that's just, it's hard sometimes for humans to want to fully trust God. And one of the challenges we face still in our day is this fallen nature tendency to want gain and power, but to do it on our terms and not God's terms. It's interesting, God is willing to prosper us. Now, we have talked in the past that this is having his presence in your life. And if you look down here, true sorrow is being cut off from God. Now, in prosperity, yeah, God will take care of your needs. He will, he will help you with that. But in this fallen nature drive for power and gain, which unfortunately is still happening today in societies around the world, which is why the Book of Mormon was preserved and revealed for our day, they give us a handbook to remind us that we can help ourselves, our families, and our societies by trusting God, being humble, trusting that as we repent and turn to him, he will bring us the prosperity of his presence that we seek. And I want to just share something here about what happens when fallen nature kicks in and we get ourselves into this side of the pride cycle. Let me write this word up here, rupture. All right, rupture means something to explode or to break. And if I put this in front of it, that actually is an intensifier. So the word corruption literally means intensively 
and thoroughly broken. And so when you look around society today, corruption is unfortunately easy to see. It's wherever people, officials, institutions are thoroughly breaking the rules and breaking the laws or designing laws or rules that actually break the way things should be. And so the Book of Mormon provides this model and a reminder that if we glory in corruption, if we support and glory in those who practice corruption or love corruption and promote corruption, we will reap the consequences. But if instead we actually turn to the Lord who heals brokenness, our own in societies, if we turn to humility, repenting, right, turning ourselves towards him, we can find the peace and prosperity that he has offered. And we're all in different circumstances, all of us, no matter how much wealth you might have or little, we all can be spiritually wealthy as we practice humility. I know in my own life, like Tyler, um, I've had financial struggles. I also remember being a student. I spent a lot of years in school. I was a bit of a slow learner. I remember sitting in a beat-up old car once in grad school and remembering Jesus' promise about, look at the lilies of the field and how God has clothed them, right? They're better clothed, and I'm uh, not translating this very well, but better clothed than all the raiment of Solomon in his temple. And I remember thinking, Lord, I've tried really hard to be righteous, and I'm feeling under enormous financial pressure right now. And at the time, I trusted the scriptures, and yet I didn't have faith. It's just kind of this weird thing, like, I knew it was true, and then sometimes I felt like, well, maybe God's not going to come through. And it's interesting, when I truly did turn my life to him, over the long run, he gave me the peace and prosperity that I needed. Maybe not the prosperity that I thought that I really wanted, but the prosperity that really mattered to help me endure to the end with peace and joy. So as you read through the rest of chapter 7 and you start getting into chapter 8, you see more and more and more of the problem being laid out by Nephi. And these chief judges, these members of some of the, the judges, rather, and the Gadian robbers in the crowd trying to incite the rest of the people to take him so that he can be judged according to their corrupt law, because he will for sure be found guilty based on that law. So we've got all of this problem being established. I love the fact that finally in verse 14 we get the solution. Chapter 8, verse 14, yea, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, so this is speaking of Moses, even so shall he be lifted up who should come. So the solution to all of these cultural corruptions and these personal pride issues and, and iniquity and sin comes back to one answer it's the coming of the Son, Son of God. Look at verse 15, and as many as should look upon that serpent should live, even so as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live 
even unto that life which is eternal. And then Nephi invokes a serious uh, list of the law of witnesses. Moses didn't only testify of these things, but also all the holy prophets from his days, even to the days of Abraham. And Abraham saw his coming and was glad, verse 18, not just Abraham only, but there were many before the days of Abraham who were called by the order of God, yea, even after the order of his son, and this that it should be shown unto the people a great many thousand years before his coming, that even redemption should come unto them. Then he invokes Zenos in 19, Zenic, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah in 20, and he keeps going. Uh, verse 22, Lehi, Nephi, almost all of our fathers, they've testified of the coming of Christ and have looked forward and have rejoiced in his day which is to come. And by the way, that's what got Lehi driven out of Jerusalem, he tells you at the beginning of verse 22, is his testifying of Christ. So, he finishes up this long law of witness list of the solution of the coming of the Messiah, and the people aren't, uh, aren't convinced, obviously, you've got these Gadianton robbers in the crowd listening to him, and he says, uh, let, me, let me give you another, another indication, another witness of your awful state that you're in, of your corruption, of how broken, how thoroughly broken your laws and your society have become. Right now, your chief judge is lying in his blood. He's just been murdered on his judgment seat. That's a pretty bold statement to make, and uh, there's this whole group like, that's impossible, and so five guys in chapter 9, they run to the judgment seat to see, and there he is, dead, lying in his blood, and they collapse and pass out, and people come along and think, oh, well, God's smitten them, that's who it is, and they throw them in prison and chapter 9, it all finally unravels when the people who were out at the Garden Tower say, well, where are those five guys we sent? And they're like, I don't know about your five guys, but we found five guys, and they're in prison, so they call them out, have this little, oh, wait, that's them, so they release them, and then the answer that these judges have for explaining why this, uh, this phenomenon occurred, they don't want to acknowledge God, they don't want to acknowledge the spirit of prophecy and revelation, so the natural man response is, let me come up with a solution, the simplest explanation for why this – we're not going to call it a miracle because those don't exist – this phenomenon existed. Um, it's really simple. Nephi has conspired with someone to go and murder the chief judge so he could make it look like he was a prophet. You see how easy it is for the devil to take the prophetic, to take the revelatory, to take the miraculous and explain it away and to tear down people's faith and to get them to not look at God but to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's not a, a big deal. In fact, let's arrest Nephi. So they go and get Nephi they bind him and bring him to question him, and look at verse 16 of chapter 9. 
Now it came to pass that the judges did expound the matter unto the people and did cry out against Nephi, saying, Behold, we know that this Nephi must have agreed with someone to slay the judge, and then he might declare it unto us that he might convert us unto his faith, that he might raise himself to be a great man. Notice their own motivation coming through their accusation. Whatever I can do to lie, cheat, steal, murder in order to puff myself up and get gain and glory and praise, they're now superimposing their own iniquity, their own corruption onto the prophet uh, because that's what they do. These are the exact, the exact kinds of things that they would have thought to do. Notice they bring Nephi in verse 19, and he's bound before the multitude, and they began to question him in diverse ways that they might cross him, that they might accuse him to death, saying unto him, Thou art confederate, who is this man that hath done this murder? Now tell us, and acknowledge thy fault, saying, Behold, here is money, and also we will grant unto thee thy life if thou wilt tell us and acknowledge the agreement which thou hast made with him. Notice this, as they hold out money, their God, their, the thing that gives them power, the thing that they turn to when they're in trouble, the thing that they use in order to, to feel accepted and, and, and worthwhile, they're offering him money. Here, tell us who it was. Can you picture the look on his face as he looks at that, kind of like uh, Amulek and Zeezrom before in Ammonihah looking at six aunties of silver? This is not Nephi's God. He, he recognizes money for what it is, and he then says in verse 21, O ye fools, ye uncircumcised of heart, ye blind and ye stiff-necked people, do ye know how long the Lord your God will suffer you? that ye shall go on in, your, in this your way of sin, you ought to begin to mourn and to howl. Um, and then he tells them that if they don't repent, they, they will be mourning and howling. They, they will be totally destroyed. And then he takes them on a totally different direction than they had anticipated. He piles on more prophecy and more revelation. Verse 27, 28, 29, 30, he gives them a script. He says, you go to uh, Caesarum's brother, Seantum, and here is what you're going to say, here's what he's going to say, here's what he's going to do, here's how you're going to respond, and here's how it's going to turn out. Well, they send a group of people, verse 37, they went and did even according as Nephi had said unto them, and behold, the words which he had said were true. For according to the words, he did deny, and also according to the words, he did confess. So at this point, you say, wait, but one of our questions, Seantum, was, did you have, were you confederate with Nephi? And his answer, no, I had nothing to do with Nephi. At that point, you'll notice that miracles, signs, don't convert anyone. They don't, uh, they don't lead to lasting change. Now, some of you would say, well, wait a minute. Down in verse uh, 40 and 41, notice what it says, now there were some among the people who said that Nephi was a prophet. So they're convinced now that he's a prophet, some of them. Verse 41, there were others who said, behold, he's a god. 
for except he was a god, he could not know of all things. For behold, he has told us the thoughts of our hearts. And you're thinking, oh good, so at least we've got a, a couple of groups who think he's a prophet and some who actually think he's a god, which isn't a great thing, by the way, but the key here is not what's happened in the convincing of the mind, but what's happened with the soul. Have they truly become humble to the point where they're going to turn to God and repent, or are they just walking away going, wow, that was really cool, he he, he must be a prophet, other than well, I think he's a god, and most of them saying, no, I, don't, I can't figure this out yet, but there's, there's some other secret combination in here, because that's the way they think, right? Look at the clue in verse 1 of chapter 10. And it came to pass that there arose a division among the people, insomuch that they divided hither and thither, and went their ways, leaving Nephi alone as he was standing in the midst of them. You'll notice they went their ways. They didn't go God's way. They didn't follow Nephi in the way. They went their ways and left Nephi standing all alone in the midst with these different groups. Brothers and sisters, Taylor said this before, this is one of the key elements of the Book of Mormon. It is written for our day. It's a handbook for how to be good in our day, and in our day we have great divisions among the people, and they divide hither and thither and go their ways after their causes. This is not the ideal scenario for God's children. We are all children of heavenly parents sent down to this earth, and yet somehow we continually set up these boundaries and these differences between each group and go our ways, that's what the devil wants. He wants to divide, he wants to cut, he wants to separate, whereas Christ wants to unify. His, his number one prayer to, to heaven before going into Gethsemane in the intercessory prayer was, Father, bless them that they may be one as we are one, that they may be one in us. It's a unifying Zion feeling. It's a being more concerned about the needs of my neighbors and the people around me than myself. It's not me trying to puff up in pride and sin in order to get money and gain and power and riches and honor and glory. It's like, Life's too short for that. That doesn't – we didn't bring that with us and we're not taking it with us when we leave. So see it for what it is, use it to build up those around us. Anyway, Nephi, poor Nephi, standing here, probably thinking to himself, what could I have done more? What, what, el what else possibly could I have done to help these people recognize the prophetic nature that God has granted me to be able to prophesy these things, and notice verse 2, he went his way towards his own house pondering upon the things which the Lord had shown unto him. And as he's pondering, being much cast down because of the wickedness of the people of the Nephites, their secret works of darkness and their murderings and their plunderings and all manner of iniquities, 
and it came to pass as he was thus pondering in his heart, behold, a voice came unto him. Now before we talk about what the voice said, let me just point something out. There's a pattern that the people of God through the history of time spend most of their time worrying about and laboring for others. You'll notice Nephi wasn't going home saying, poor me, he's not throwing a pity party for himself, he's not saying, wow, I can't believe how poorly I was treated. That's not what his sorrowing is. He's sorrowing because he's cast down because of the wickedness of the people of the Nephites and their secret works of darkness. And then comes the voice. Here he is in this, in this downtrodden state, blessed art thou Nephi for those things which thou hast done. You'll notice the voice didn't say, blessed art thou Nephi because of the great success you've had in your missionary labors, because you've been such an amazing teacher, look how many converts you have. That's not why Nephi was blessed by the Lord. He was blessed because of those things which thou hast done, which is you've turned to me, you've given your life to me, you've devoted everything you have to me, fully consecrated, blessed art thou. This is a beautiful um, next phrase here. For I have beheld how thou hast with unwearyingness declared the word which I have given unto thee unto this people. I don't think that phrase applies just to Nephi in these BC times. I think that applies to our prophets and apostles today. I think that applies to numberless leaders in the church, uh, men and women of God who with unwearyingness have declared the word. I think that applies to numerous mommies and daddies who life is hard, they're downtrodden, they've got so many pressures and struggles, but they keep with unwearyingness, they keep teaching. And in some cases where children have gone astray and don't want to hear any teaching, they keep loving, they keep doing, they keep pouring their heart out. Look at this next phrase, thou hast not feared this people, and thou hast not sought thine own life, but thou hast sought my will and to keep my commandments. The thing that makes verse 4 so beautiful to me is not because it's such a good description of Nephi, but because it's such a good description of Jesus Christ, and Nephi then becomes a type or a shadow of Christ, a lens through which I can better see Jesus. I'm trying to be more like Jesus. Well, Nephi gives me a pattern of I can I can try a little harder to be a little better at this, at these, these elements. Look at verse 5. Now, because thou hast done this with such unwearingness, behold, I will bless thee forever, and I will make thee mighty in word and in deed and faith and in works. Uh, it's kind of fun when you get a scriptural passage that's so clear like this where a person is, is being told by the Lord, I'm going to bless you forever but it didn't come at the front end of all of his uh, struggles and his, his issues teaching the people. It came after waiting through many years of having his faith and his patience tested and tried. Notice that he is told at the end of verse 5, 
that he'll, he'll be given anything he asks for. Why? Thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. Behold, thou art Nephi, and I am God. Behold, I declare it unto thee in the presence of mine angels that ye shall have power over this people and shall smite the earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction according to the wickedness of this people. Behold, I give unto you power that whatsoever you shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and thus ye shall have power among this people. So what does he do? It says, verse uh, 12, <clears throat> Behold, now it came to pass that when the Lord had spoken these words unto Nephi, he did stop <clears throat> and did not go unto his own house, but did return unto the multitudes who were scattered upon the face of the land, and he began to declare unto them all the things that the Lord had asked him to teach. So he, he instantly turns around, sounds a lot like other stories in the Book of Mormon, and he goes and he starts teaching the people, and only after he has warned all the group one more time and they refuse to, to repent does he finally decide, okay, all right, I, I, will, I will call down a famine. So chapter 11, watch what happens <clears throat> as we go through chapter 11. I'm just going to put the dates here. I'll use a different color. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the seventy-second year of the reign of the judges that the contentions did increase insomuch that there were wars throughout all the land among the people of Nephi. So we're in the seventy-and-second year. We're some, somewhere in here between sin and destruction because there's wars. We're, we're moving along in this area. And it was the secret band of robbers who did carry on this work of destruction and wickedness. And this war did last all that year, and in the seventy-and-third year it did also last. So because there's war, there's going to be more death, more destruction. Look at verse 4. O Lord, do not suffer that these people shall be destroyed by the sword, but, O Lord, rather let there be a famine to stir them up in remembrance. Perhaps they'll repent. And so it was done. So there's a famine. So now we get into this deeper destruction which is going to lead to sorrow because now they're not even able to eat well. Uh, look at verse 6, this work of destruction did also continue in the seventy and fifth year. So now we're coming down into the seventy and fifth year. For the earth was smitten that it was dry and it did not yield forth its grain. And notice the bottom of verse 6, thousands did perish in the more wicked parts of the land. Major destruction, major sorrow in this year. Verse 7, and it came to pass that the people saw that they were about to perish by fam famine, and they began to remember the Lord their God, and they began to remember the words of Nephi. So now we're working our way up, and the people began to plead with their chief judges and their leaders that they would say unto Nephi, Behold, we know that thou art a man of God. So they – notice this – they, the people, go to their judges and say, you go to Nephi, Nephi goes to the Lord in verse 11 and pleads with God. He pours his heart out, please take away this famine. Verse 17, it came to pass in the seventy and sixth year the Lord did turn away his anger. So we have the seventy and sixth year, end of the seventy-fifth, they get humble, seventy-sixth year, now the Lord turns away his anger 
and verse 18, behold, the people did rejoice and glorify God, the whole face of the land was filled with rejoicing. Pick it up now in verse 20, thus it did come to pass that the people of Nephi began to prosper again in the land. They build it up, they cover the land, and verse 21, it came to pass in the seventy and sixth year did end in peace, and the seventy and seventh did begin in peace. So we're up here, lots of blessings, lots of prosperity. Look at the timing. Hasn't been that long, and, and we were in serious war right there. Now we're in great blessings. Look at verse uh, 22. They also had peace in the 78th year. Save it were, watch, save it were a few contentions concerning the points of doctrine. And in the 79th year there began to be much strife, and it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi, many of their brethren, they had many revelations. So now we're in the 79th year and we've got some pride and some contention starting to set in, and verse 24, it came to pass in the 80th year, there were a certain number of the dissenters from the people of Nephi, they go down, stir up the Nephi, or the Lamanites, verse 25, they commit murder and plunder, that they would retreat back, verse 26, and thus in time, yea, even in the space of not many years, they became an exceedingly great band of robbers, and they did search out all the secret plans of Gideon, and thus they became robbers of Gideon. Brothers and sisters, this is not many years when we've now made a complete uh, jump down here. Now we're in this next cycle where we're building up the Gadianton robbers again, and it wasn't that long ago that we were stuck in major famine pleading with the chief judges to get Nephi to plead with God to take it away. Now, four years later, here we are back in the same area again. Verse 30, in the commencement of the 80 and first year, they begin to go forth against the band of robbers and to destroy many, and they were also visited with much destruction. So we're struggling in the 80 and first year with destruction, and notice verse 34, this great evil which came unto the people because of their iniquity did stir them up again in remembrance of the Lord their God and thus ended the eighty and first year of the reign of the judges. So it's stirring them up again. This eighty-first year comes over here and they're humbling themselves, turning to God. Now notice verse 36, in the eighty and second year they began again to forget the Lord their God. So here we were, you can see this outer circle, and now we're forgetting the Lord our God again. In the eighty and third year, they began to wax strong in iniquity, and in the eighty and fourth year, they did not mend their ways, and it came to pass in the eighty and fifth year, they did wax stronger and stronger in their pride and in their wickedness, and thus they were ripening again for destruction. That's three times in thirteen years. It's just interesting, you actually get the voice of Mormon right here in Helaman 12. And Mormon's just like, I just can't handle this, people. I just got to insert my voice, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses. You can just hear his exasperation, like, and he's living in his own time. He's seen his own people doing this. Which is worse than this. Right. In, in Mormon 4, 5, 6, 7, wow. And you can just hear him just like, 
How is it we cannot seem to figure this out? Verse 1, Helaman 12. And thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in his great infinite, infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. The book was written for our day. We're seeing it again. Verse 2, yea, and we may see at the very time when he doth prosper his people. Yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks, and their herds, and in gold, and in silver, and all manner of precious things of every kind, and art, sparing their lives, and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies, softening the hearts of their enemies, that they should not declare wars against them. Yea, and in fine doing all things for the welfare and happiness of his people. Yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts, and to forget the Lord their God, and to trample under their feet the Holy One, yea, and this because of their ease and their exceeding great prosperity. So the question for all of us, God labored diligently with prophets to preserve these words for us today. And so where are we at in our own personal lives? God wants us to give, give us the good things of the world. He wants to give us his peace, his presence, his love, and our needs, and hopefully some of our wants. But then do we walk all over God and say, I have done this. I am a self-made man. I just have to say this. I hear this in our society. I am a self-made man. I just don't even know. I've, that's just, it's, that's impossible, right? Only God makes us. And we have to ask ourselves, are we expressing gratitude for all that we have and remembering all the good that God has done and remembering to share what blessings God has given with us freely and freely sharing with others. That is interesting how Mormon has to, to take an entire chapter and insert his own personal reflections on the state of humanity. And uh, look, look at verse 3. Thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. Oh, how foolish and how vain and how evil and devilish and how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do good are the children of men. Yea, how quick to hearken unto the words of the evil one and to set their hearts upon the vain things of the world. And he goes on and on and on talking about the uh, fallen nature of mankind and how slow we are to, to turn to God, but how quick to jump into this other side of the pride cycle. Notice verse uh, 23 because we don't want to end on a down note. Therefore, blessed are they who will repent and hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God, for these are they that shall be saved. And may God grant in his great fullness that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. And then he tells us that uh, he wishes that all men might be saved, but he realizes that that's probably not going to be the case because of agency. <clears throat> In closing, brothers and sisters, this book is true. 
it wasn't just a storybook about events that happened to an isolated group of people over 2,000 years ago on the American continent. These stories are relevant today as much as they've ever been in the history of time. God has prepared this book and these teachings to help any who are willing to turn to him in humility and repent of their sins to come unto him and be perfected in Christ, to not have to spend time over in this part of the pride cycle. We may be surrounded by a cultural uh, wilderness, by societal issues that are getting more and more difficult with each cycle that progresses, but we don't need to uh, feel like we're a victim of that society. If we as individuals and families, wards, communities can band together in humility, turn to God and seek his will, uh, a lot of what happened in these chapters involves prayer. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant but that are made conditional on our asking for them. May the Lord bless each of us as we move forward in faith and humility, turning to God to allow more fully our will to be swallowed up in his and to find out what blessings he already has in store and he's just waiting for us to ask. Know that he's there. Know that he loves us. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope you feel the love of God as you spend time in the scriptures, and we hope you feel his outstretched arms to you as expressed in the Book of Mormon, that he is there willing and ready to embrace you in his love.